Hi there and welcome to Power Play. Tonight, Parliament tries to tackle Canadians' travel nightmares. Once again, we had the same failures. Canada's approach to air passenger rights is deeply flawed. What can or should Ottawa do to keep the travel chaos of the holiday season in the rear view? We'll ask Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra, who will be here live in moments. Then, Alberta's handing out cash, new money for inflation relief on the heels of a $12 billion surplus. How does Premier Danielle Smith square that with an ask from the feds for more money for health care? The Premier will be here and we'll put that to her. And does former finance minister Bill Morneau think the prime minister is an effective manager of the economy? Being an effective manager of the economy means going past those immediate things and thinking about the long term. The front bench, our new panel of political insiders, will be here to break down my exclusive sit-down with Morneau just ahead. First, though, before we get underway, a quick second to introduce myself. I'm Vashi Capellos, and I'm thrilled to be hosting Power Play and following in a long line of journalists I think the world of, especially my good friend and colleague, Evan Solomon. You, you can expect, rather, this show to be all about respectful accountability and civil debate, and I look forward to the honor of being let into your homes as you make dinner each and every night. On that note, let's get started. Holiday travel chaos is now a political hot potato. We were promised quite frankly, by the Liberal Minister, that these matters were addressed, that he had it under control, that the broken system had been fixed. Clearly, it has not been fixed. There are still massive problems. Most importantly, we need to hear from the Minister of Transport, the person who is charged with overseeing Canada's transportation system. Members of the opposition, they're not holding back to weigh in on the travel woes of the holiday season and what should be done about it. MPs will grill air airlines at the Transport Committee, and they'll also hear from Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra, who is with me live now. Hi, Minister Al-Gabra. Good to have you with us. Good evening, uh, Vashi, and congratulations on your show, and it's uh, my pleasure to be with you. And thank you very much. It's great. It's a great pleasure to host you this evening. Uh, Minister, you have been saying that you're looking at ways you can improve the regulations your government have put in place to, uh, in your view, protect passengers. Can you be more specific? What improvements are you looking for and when will they be in place? Uh, first of all, Vashi, let me clarify what some of the opposition members are trying to say that is not accurate. What we saw last summer was different what we saw this Christmas. Last summer, it was a COVID recovery rush where 300% uh, increase in travel saw a stress on the entire system. Uh, we saw government agencies, we saw airlines, airports all struggle uh, with coping with the significant rush of travelers. This time around, we had two extreme weather events back to back from British Columbia to Ontario to Quebec. And then we saw one airline make unfortunate decisions that left their customers stranded. So there are two different, extremely different scenarios. Second, um, uh, the rules that we put in place into, since 2019 are great and strong, but there are opportunities for us to make them better. And we learned from what had happened last summer and we're working on figuring out to uphold those rules. However, the onus continues to be we need the airlines to follow the rules. And when an airline doesn't follow the rule or don't meet their expectations, they're expected to compensate their passengers. 
So uh, to answer your question, um, I'm working right now with Transport Canada and other stakeholders on identifying new improvements to the regulations that we have to ensure that the airlines have more onus on them to uphold customers or passengers' rights to provide support to the Canadian transportation agencies to have a more efficient uh, way of processing complaints. Minister, you, you described your rules as great, but would you concede uh, with respect if you're having trouble getting airlines to follow them that maybe they're not so great? Um, Vashi, rules are there in place for airlines to follow. And if the airlines don't follow them, they are expected to compensate their customers and occasionally be fined. Um, so I'll concede that the CTA, Canadian Transportation Agencies, is dealing with an avalanche of complaints that were unforecasted. We are working on making sure that we streamline the process of dealing with complaints. We are also working on clarifying and strengthening these rules. But again, let's not lose sight of the fact that the airlines Private businesses are expected to hold their customers' rights uh, uh, at the center of their operation, and the government will continue to figure out how we can uh, keep airlines, uh, uh, that they keep their obligations to their customers. Uh, and Minister, certainly I'm not trying to take away from the culpability that does lie with airlines. In fact, we've invited the CEOs of all major airlines on this program. I'd love to quiz them as well. But right now, you're here, and I'd like to ask about the federal government's role. And in specifically, for example, when you talk about the effectiveness or, or, or the way in which you would characterize the effectiveness of the rules you've put in place, you talk about the backlog that the CTA is dealing with. Those are complaints based on the rules you've put in place according to the passengers not being followed. When those rules came into effect two, two years, three years ago almost, there was already a backlog, 14,000 cases in the backlog. Then there were 18,000 this past August. There are 30,000 at the end of November. That doesn't inc even include what's happening this holiday season. Again, my question is to you, would you concede that those rules are perhaps not so great and that it wasn't unforecasted that the CTA would have a lot of these complaints to deal with. Uh, Vashi, what we saw with COVID recovery and COVID uh, scenario, it really posed an unforecasted, extraordinary measures and pressure on the aviation sector. Uh, this was a once in a hundred year uh, pandemic and we learned some lessons from this. So what I am saying uh, is that we're gonna learn from those lessons and strengthen the rules, including figuring out how we can make complaint, the complaint process much more efficient and ensure that the Canadian Transportation Agency has the, the resources and the authorities they need to make them more efficient. With respect, Minister, though, that backlog, as I just pointed out, didn't just exist because of COVID. I do take your point that COVID exacerbated a lot of things, and certainly there are a lot of lessons to heed from that. Uh, and I'm not trying to take away from that. But the backlog that existed at the CTA existed in May of 2020. That backlog has grown ever since. Why has your government not adequately addressed it yet? Uh, so, Vashi, I guess, I'm, you know, you're not taking a uh, yes for an answer. Uh, I am saying we are working on, fig on 
strengthening and providing more tools to the Canadian Transportation Agency to deal with the backlog, to deal with complaints. Uh, there have been some lessons learned. Uh, the rules, this was, by the way, the first regime in Canada's history to deal with uh, passenger rights. Uh, and this is something, uh, it is one of the strongest in the world. Uh, yes, there have been some lessons once it got implemented and then compounded by COVID. So we're going to learn from these lessons like any responsible government would do. And then we're proceeding with ensuring that we have the resources and the tools provided for the CTA. Okay, Minister, just before I let you go, I'm going to circle back then, jumping off that answer to my first question. When can Canadians expect those improvements to the rules? I am hoping to table a proposal to Parliament this uh, during the spring session. Okay, so in the next few months? Yes, that's, that's, that's the plan. Okay, Minister, I appreciate your time. As always, thank you. Thanks, Vashi. Transport Minister Omar, or more rather, Al-Gabra, will have more on this a bit later on the program with Thank our you. panel, the front bench, political insiders, Miriam Monsaf, Melanie Parody, Kathleen Monk, as well as Laura Stone will be here. They'll weigh in on what you just heard from the minister and whether it goes far enough. Right now, though, just more than three years to the day after a violent mob of American election deniers stormed the U.S. Capitol a familiar show of violence in Brazil. This weekend, thousands of supporters of defeated former President Jair Bolsonaro stormed that country's Congress, its Supreme Court, and its presidential palace. CTV News Washington Bureau Chief Joy Malbin is here to break that down for us. Hi, Joy. Thanks for being with us. Let's start with what happened in Brazil. Protesters were really able to do a lot of damage. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you mentioned this is deja vu for so many Americans. Uh, the far, these are supporters of the far right former president, uh, Mr. Bolsonaro, and uh, they believe that the election was stolen because Bolsonaro was crying fraud. He was questioning voting machines. And if that all sounds familiar, well, that's exactly what Donald Trump was saying and still saying today. Uh, so, so these scenes were eerily similar to, to what many Americans experienced when the Capitol was attacked. Uh, now, they believe that Bolsonaro, the election was very close. They believe that he won, uh, but the damage was extensive. I mean, they, they stormed the Capitol. They stormed the presidential palace. And there are big questions tonight uh, about how this could have happened. And, and they're investigating who may have financed this. And about 1,500 people, I think, detained right now. What, what is the reaction like in Washington, given those parallels you explained? Well, a lot of condemnation and a lot of critics are saying, look, this is right out of the playbook of Donald Trump. Certainly Democratic critics are saying such. And there's also a lot of pressure on the White House uh, to get rid of Bolsonaro because he just happens to be here in America. He's in Florida. Apparently he's been admitted to a hospital in Orlando. He's suffering some kind of stomach pains, uh, possibly from a stabbing attempt a couple of uh, years ago. Um, but there's a question about his status because He's no longer head of state. Uh, Lula da Silva is now the president. Uh, and so there are questions about what should the, the Americans do. Certainly there's been condemnation from Joe Biden, uh, Canada and Mexico. All of them released a statement today uh, saying this was a terrible attack on democracy and they stand with Brazil. Okay, thanks very much, Joy. CTV News' Washington Bureau Chief 
Joy Malbin for us in D.C. And certainly we'll have more on those three leaders. Joy mentioned their meeting in Mexico City as we speak. The prime minister has just touched down and we do expect some live remarks from him a little later this evening. We'll bring those to you as they happen. Up next, though, Alberta is announcing inflation relief, spending a surplus while asking the feds for more money for health care. How does Premier Danielle Smith square that circle? We're going to ask her next. Welcome back to Power Play. We're going to head over to Alberta, where the government there has just announced inflation relief for seniors, vulnerable Albertans and families with kids uh, with an income under $180,000. Premier Danielle Smith is in Calgary. Hi, Premier. Good to see you. My pleasure. Good to see you. Congratulations on the new show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, Premier, I want to start off with the announcement you made today. The money that you announced for Albertans. How do Canadians listening square your government's ability to disperse that amount of money with asking the federal government to write a bigger and strings-free check for health care? Look, uh, there's a couple of things I'd say. Number one is the reason why we have the ability to give money back to Albertans is the same reason why we're enjoying a surplus this year, that when oil and natural gas prices go up, we do get the benefit. And we have a bit of a culture in Alberta that when we benefit as the owners of the resource, we want them to share in it, especially those who are most in need. When it comes to health care, I'm of the view that it's my job to try to solve the health care crisis that we have. It's a crisis that's going on across the country. Obviously, federal dollars in matching us 50-50 would be helpful in that, but I'm not going to stop in working on health reform. I, I, I know that my job is to, is to fix health care first, and some of that is structural change. Some of it might be uh, alleviated with some money, but I'm not going to wait for the federal government to make a decision before I act. So to be clear, are you in concert with other premiers who have clearly asked the federal government to increase its share through the Canada Health Transfer of health care funding? I've been supportive of that of that move. It started, I think, three years ago, and so I'm I'm supportive and and adding my voice to that. But I, I think that we've also seen that the federal government, uh, in two, on two occasions just in the last month, have said that they're not going to do it. And I'm not going to stop doing health care reform because the federal government doesn't want to partner with us. We we have to we have a responsibility to make sure that health care is delivered in the best way to our citizens. And so that's what I'm focused on right now. I, I want to circle back to your uh, announcement today in a second, but I also want to be clear on the ask from the federal government. The federal government has said, okay, at some point we are willing to increase the amount of money transferred to provinces, but we want some accountability attached to it, so-called strings attached to it. Are you okay with that? I'm working on accountability measures right now. I want more accountability from the healthcare system. It's why I'm asking for measures on ambulance wait times in hospitals. I'm asking for measures on how long it takes once you get into an emergency room. How long does it take before you get treated and released or admitted? I'm asking for measures on what our surgical wait time is. And I'm also trying to find out how many of our citizens have access to a family doctor. So I'm, I'm asking for those measures. When I get them, I will make them public. And if that's the kind of uh, measure that would help the federal government move towards assisting us in in uh, addressing some of those pressure points, I'm, I'm happy to do that. But my preference would be that they give envelope funding, that they trust that we know better how to manage our healthcare system, and that they are, are willing to be a funding partner in that based on some of the original agreements that we came to. Originally, as I understand it, we were supposed to fund healthcare 50-50, and that doesn't appear to be the case today, which is why the premiers have been asking for them to meet that, that, that commitment. So just to be clear, because I'm not clear from it, I, I take your point on wanting accountability on all those 
provincial sort of markers. Um, and, and you said on the one hand, you are willing, if that's what the federal government is looking for, to submit that data. Is that my understanding? But on the other hand, your preference is they just hand over an envelope of money. So which is it? Envelope funding would be my preference, absolutely. But I think Albertans need to have measures so that they know their healthcare system is working. So I'm working on that, regardless of what it is that the federal government is asking us to do. So let me just repeat then, if the federal government comes to you and says, we are willing to increase the amount of money we give Alberta for healthcare, but we would like uh, you know, these markers to be met, or we'd like you to submit data on these three fronts, would you say yes? Uh, look, I mean, I don't believe that I have to sit and wait for the federal government to make up its mind. We, as you know, since I got elected, I believe that my job is to do what's right for Albertans and for us to be exercising our full area of authority. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm quite happy to join in the voices of the premiers in a project that they started three years ago and saying, let's uh, meet 50-50. But uh, me improving the healthcare system out in Alberta is, is going to be done regardless of whether or not the federal government wants to be a funding partner. It's a priority for us to make sure that the healthcare system works. It's struggling. And I started reforms already as my first action when I became premier, and I'm going to continue it. Can people watching read from that that you don't think that federal funding will come through? Um, I think they've been pretty clear <laughs> that they are not coming to the table. I think uh, Duclos has said he's not coming to the table, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has said he's not coming to the table as well. And so I'm, I can't stop the health care reforms that I need to do on the basis of hoping the federal government is going to be our funding partner. I've got to make the reforms. You have a $12 billion surplus. You've been able to use that to announce the money that you, uh, the relief that you announced today. Uh, there's also fuel tax relief, electricity rebates, and natural gas rebates. Is it fair to say that you don't need money from another source? It's certainly at this time, we are, we are blessed with having um, a, an immense amount of revenue that has come in from oil and natural gas on the basis of historic production. We've also got a change in the royalties that our oil sense producers are, are paying. But let's remember, we're coming off eight years of economic hardship. We had 180,000 jobs lost. We had six consecutive quarters of people leaving this province. And so we have now finally seen a turnaround. And I'm, I'm grateful for that because it means that our oil sense companies are, have announced that they're going to invest in additional projects. We're looking at carbon tech and carbon capture as a way of making sure that we've got the greenest barrels in the world. And I think that's all very positive and I want to support it. But I don't want to take for granted that this is going to always be the case. We were very fortunate in the last year, but this is, this is certainly not something that, um, that I would anticipate would, would continue. I, I have always felt like Ottawa overtaxes. They take more money than they need and then they try to dribble it back to the provinces on the basis of conditions. I would be far more open to seeing them do what they did before on healthcare, which is to transfer more tax points to us so that we have the ability to generate our own source revenue to be able to pay for the rising pressures in healthcare. I'm, I'm not all that keen on Ottawa continuing to dictate to us their priorities when I, I know pretty clearly what the priorities of Albertans are, certainly better than he does on healthcare. So, so just to be clear, to understand that, you, you would rather raise your own taxes and then use the money for what you want to use it rather than wait for the federal government to hand over more cash? Well, this is what the federal government has said is, as to why they're not meeting the, the premier's request, is that they said that because they did a, ma a major transfer of tax points years ago, that they're already funding to 35%. Fair enough. Um, if the funding arrangement was 50-50, I think they should transfer more tax points to us so that we can continue to have the revenues that we need. Because as we go along, we have an aging population. We've got uh, far more expensive biologics and other new developments in, in healthcare that we're going to need to pay for. 
And we should be able to have our own source revenue to be able to pay for that. So I, I prefer the model that they did before, which is recognizing that the pressures that we have at the, at the provincial level means that we should be able to generate more revenue locally. And so that would be my preference. Respectfully, though, uh, doesn't that ability already exist? Couldn't you, for example, introduce a sales tax and generate extra revenue that you could then direct <laughs> to, uh, to, to health care? Well, you have to remember, Ottawa has uh, overtaxed Albertans to the tune of $600 billion since about the 1960s. And I have a clear mandate from the Alberta people that they want to stop this equalization. It was part of the reason they gave, me a, uh, gave our government a 62% favorable uh, vote on a referendum to eliminate the concept of equalization. So I, I think that Ottawa should uh, right-size its programs, that they should accept the amount of tax revenue that they need to fund their areas of jurisdiction and they should vacate the tax room so that we can fund our areas of jurisdiction. That's to me what cooperative federalism is supposed to look like. Instead, they've taken the approach that they overtax, particularly Alberta, but also Ontario, British Columbia, and other have provinces, and then they redistribute the money on the basis of some pretty strict conditions. And so I, I think that I, I'm of, a, of the view, and it shouldn't surprise you, that uh, I believe that, that we have a, a separate constitutional jurisdiction as defined under Section 92 and 92A and other sections. That, and and I, I believe that the federal government invades our, our jurisdiction, and I, I wish they'd stop. And part uh, okay. of the way that they could stop doing that is stop Par overtaxing us. Pardon the interruption, but I just have about 30 seconds left. You're referring to equalization, which is a whole other conversation <laughs> that could be had. You're describing it as taxation. It's redistribution in, in other uh, conceptions. My question, though, to you was around the, the mechanisms you have at your disposal. You could, in fact, introduce a sales tax and increase revenues and pay for health care that way, could you not? Uh, you know what? We're not going to have a, a sales tax in this province. It's one of the things that I've heard pretty loud and clear from, from our people. They don't uh, want a, an additional sales tax. They want us to use the resources that we have to get the best results that we can. And that's part of the reason why I'm focused so, so, um, uh, so strongly on the, the measures that we need to improve the health care performance. It's our biggest ticket item. And I'm going to conti continue with those reforms regardless of whether or not there's federal funding attached to it. Premier, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time. You bet. My pleasure. Alberta's Premier Danielle Smith. Coming up, we've got your political stories of the day covered with The List. And our debut front bench panel is here to talk about travel chaos and former finance minister Bill Morneau's explosive tell-all memoir back in just a moment right here on PowerPlay. Mexico City, where the Prime Minister is delivering some opening remarks to North American CEOs as he kicks off the North American Leaders Summit. Let's have a listen. Be joined by so many friends uh, in this room, obviously, uh, from the business, labor, and financial community in Canada, people like uh, Goldie, Flavio, Macandre, Tabitha, Jody, and so many others. Um, but really important as well that we have uh, business leaders uh, from across the continent, from the United States and Mexico. We're all here because we understand how important economic cooperation between our three countries is. Since the signing of NAFTA three decades ago, we've seen an extraordinary economic expansion across our continent with unprecedented growth in trade has come unprecedented integration uh, of uh, our supply chains, our efforts, and our prosperity for citizens. But it hasn't been without its challenges over the past years. And I wanted to start off uh, by saying thank you to you all. Uh, a few years ago, uh, 
we're talking amongst friends now, uh, we recognized that the extraordinary success of this integrated free trade zone, larger free trade zone than any other in the world, including the European Union, uh, was under real threat. We almost lost NAFTA. And the Mexican government and uh, me and my government in Canada worked very, very hard to try and convince the American administration of the time of how important that trade with friends, integrated supply chains, reliable partnerships, and continental approach to building opportunities for our citizens was. And I was pretty convincing, and I know the Mexican government worked very, very hard to make that point as well, but we couldn't have done it without the business leaders and the labor leaders in this room who understood deeply that it was a matter of individual and shared prosperity, that it was a matter of the well-being of our countries, of our communities and our, our citizens to get it right. So not only did we protect NAFTA, not only did we renegotiate NAFTA, but we actually improved NAFTA. And the work that you did to make sure that we can continue to move forward and stay active in making sure that the benefits of this trade and growth accrue to all of our citizens is unbelievably important. We've seen protectionism rise around the world over the past years. Questions about globalization, concerns about the impacts on workers. Nobody ever argues that trade doesn't create growth. We know trade creates growth. But what citizens and communities got skeptical about was that trade was creating growth for them. And that's why in our approach with renegotiating NAFTA, we made sure, all of us, that workers' protections, environmental protections, community protections, uh, people's rights, including Indigenous peoples, including opportunities for women, as a part of demonstrating that the prosperity that trade creates can and must deliver benefits for everyone. That was our focus, and that is ultimately why we succeeded, because of the workers who knew that they were going to see good jobs long into the future as we work together. Our auto sector is a great example of this. From Windsor to Detroit to Saltillo, workers are building cars people rely on. And these are good middle-class jobs that support families and communities in each of our countries. Not just that, but we're now working together to build the electric vehicles that people want to drive. Of course, those vehicles rely on batteries made with critical minerals. Well, Canada released our critical mineral strategy just a few weeks ago, and it lays out Canada's plan to capitalize on the once-in-a-generation opportunity we all have right now to be leaders as we move forward towards a clean economy and reduce our reliance on less re reliable trade partners around the world. We know that Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine has highlighted how important for Europe, for example, having reliable supplies of minerals, of energy is. 
everywhere around the world with the disruptions of the pandemic, people are understanding, yes, supply chains need to be efficient, but they also need to be resilient and reliable. And that's why the friendship, not just the partnership, but the friendship between our three countries as reliable partners is one of the great advantages that Canada has, uh, that, that, that Canada North, uh, and uh, uh, Mexico and the United States have. In an uncertain world, Canada is a stable and reliable partner. We're also a leader in responsible mining. We're home to almost half the world's publicly listed mining and mineral exploration companies with a presence in more than 100 companies, countries. And I'm so glad to see so many members from the mining community here today. But when we talk about critical minerals, we're not just talking about natural resource extraction. We know that critical minerals are essential for so many of the jobs and businesses and innovations and uh, technologies that the world is going to be relying on in the coming years and decades. Those initiatives, whether it's green initiatives, whether it's quantum and AI initiatives that are going to rely on these kinds of responsibly developed, economically sustained, uh, environmentally developed uh, minerals that are going to matter so much. Um, we know there's a lot more work to do. We know we always have to stay on our guards as various political forces come and go and uh, put pressure. But I can tell you uh, that whether it's on critical minerals, whether it's on agri-food innovations, whether it's in the auto sector, uh, whether it's in energy, particularly renewable energy, we have so many opportunities that the world is looking to us to create and deliver together, it's time for us to continue to step up. Nos travailleurs du secteur des ressources naturelles s'assurent que les matériaux nécessaires pour le Canada soient To keep deepening our trade ties, to continue to invest in the worker, the people, and the communities who are at the very center of your success, of all of our success. Good job. That is the Prime Minister addressing CEOs who have gathered at the North American Leaders Summit in Mexico City. You heard the Prime Minister make the case for Canada as a place to invest, in particular focusing on the newly released critical minerals strategy. The Prime Minister will also have an opportunity on this trip to meet one-on-one -on -one with U.S. President Joe Biden. We're tracking all the developments as those leaders meet and we'll bring them to you as they happen. Right now, though, I want to turn back to our top story, travel chaos in this country and what Parliament plans to do about it. Have a listen to some of the frustrations Canadians are feeling on this issue right now. Our flight was delayed by two or three days. They wouldn't tell us when. They just kept on delaying and not cancelling the flight so people had to stay in the airport. Sunwing has absolutely been useless. The rep here has no information. We can actually get more information online than the Sunwing rep has here. Nobody heard from Sunwing. We were literally forgotten about. So what is the federal government prepared to do about the frustrations you just heard? Let's bring in our debut edition of the Front Bench to talk about the pros and cons of what's ahead of the feds on this issue. Joining me this evening, Onward CEO and former Liberal Cabinet Minister Miriam Monsef, former Communications Director to Aaron O'Toole and current Texture Communications President Melanie Paradis, NDP strategist and Monk & Associates Principal Owner Kathleen Monk and the Globe and Mail's Queen's Park reporter 
Laura Stone. Hi, everybody. Nice hey to there. see you this evening. Great to have hi, you uh, with me, Kathleen. Hi, guys. Kathleen, I'm going to start with you. And this seems like a, a, we had the minister on earlier, yeah. and he's saying improvements to the regulations are coming within the next few months. It's the first time I heard him put a timeline on it. What kind of pressure are the feds facing right now on this issue? Tons of pressure, but this pressure has been going on since early in the pandemic. Remember, passengers were treated horribly at the beginning of the pandemic. The government promised to act. Then again last summer, uh, all the travel chaos, the government promised to act. In fact, the minister himself held a big summit in November just a couple months ago saying this will never happen again. But it's like we're, we're trapped watching the same in-flight movie over and over again, you know, and passengers continue to hold the bag. That's if the airlines haven't lost <laughs> their luggage. They're all uh, at Pearson know. right now. <laughs> They're actually. all at Pearson. <laughs> and so the thing is, and when you watch committee today and all the partisan sniping that happened, you wonder where the solutions are going to come from. Complex issue for sure. There's labor, there's security, there's, you know, there's obviously supply chains with some of the issues. There's logistics. There's the company issues. But in terms of consumer protections, this is something we've been talking about in this town for years. The NDP themselves actually put forward like a bill six different times. You know, vote, vote came to vote in 2009 when I was still working on the Hill. And the Conservatives at that point voted against it. So I'm not sure where the, where, where the new set of rules are going to come from. We'll see this Thursday with the minister uh, speaking at committee and hopefully those CEOs. I feel like, Miriam, this is one of those really tough issues that is, as Kathleen points out, very nuanced in how it will be solved. But the problem is one that's so easy for Canadians to understand. That frustration is not so nuanced, right? The, whether it's the bags, the sitting on the tarmac, the getting your flight, flight canceled and having to sit there for seven days, like that part is easy to understand. Solving it is, is not simple. Yeah, this was a major mess up. And this is Canada. Travel disruptions happen, uh, especially in winter. And Canadians are smart, reasonable people. As long as there is timely communication with those affected, as long as they're offered alternative options, neither of those things, though, happened in this case. And so the airlines, the carriers have a duty to, first of all, compensate quickly those who've been affected if they do not have a contingency plan for extreme weather in Canadian winters, they better get cracking on it. And Parliament, as well as the cabinet minister in charge, have an opportunity to show Canadians that democracy works, that there was a problem. We're going to come together and we're going to fix it. The Air Passenger Bill of Rights is new for Canadians. We didn't really get to test it out. It came into effect just as COVID began. And so we're really seeing what works and what doesn't with it now. And there's an opportunity to tighten it up. And I would expect, at the very least, that timely compensation is something that can be further codified in whatever new version of this Bill of Rights Parliament and the Cabinet Minister end up putting forward because we can do better, we have to do better. Traveling is a luxury for so many Canadians, years being at home. For so many, this was their only opportunity to get away. And we have an opportunity as, you know, Parliament has an opportunity uh, to fix it and to do better. And I really hope that they seize the opportunity without, you know, throwing mud, but actually fixing the problem and showing that they're focused on Canadians. I feel like, Melanie, if um, if, if the, the minister and the government can zero in on that compensation issue and making it timely, because it's not, right? That's why there's such a big backlog right now. 
uh, with the body that investigates all this stuff, like ten, like thirty thousand. The number is thirty thousand, I think, at the end of uh, end of November. Uh, what do you think the the if they're able to address that adequately, is that a win for them? Well, I think that compensation is certainly part of the equation here. And certainly the Conservatives have called for tougher uh, passenger protections. We've been calling for them for, for years. Frankly, even under Aaron O'Toole, we call for them. Um, Europe has more protections than we do, but they also, more importantly, I think, have more competition. Competition is a big issue. Service, period, is a big issue. There are huge gaps across this country that do not get served by regional transportation networks that are reliable. I live in a part of Ontario in, in Belleville where we only have Via Rail. And Via Rail was, of course, also caught up in, in some very serious problems that happened uh, this winter with massive delays and their passengers being stuck for hours on end. But that's really, that's just a, a moment in time with problems for our regional transportation network. This goes back years. We had, we had issues with regional transportation before COVID, but during COVID, it really damaged um, the supply of what we have, the mix of what we have. Greyhound, who was in Canada for 90 years, left because they could no longer make a viable business out of it. But I think in in my part of Ontario in particular, I'll give you one quick example. Via Rail still has not restored their early morning train that served the, the communities between Kingston and Port Hope into Toronto. Um, every morning they'd have a train. Thousands of commuters depended on it. They still haven't re- restored it since covid Two ministers in the Ontario government, Todd Smith and Dave Puccini, have been asking, they've been calling, they've been writing letters. The mayors along the along this uh, 401 corridor as well have been asking for meetings with Via Rail. They've gotten no response for over a year. This problem is so much bigger than just the airlines. We have a massive problem with transportation in Canada that needs to be addressed much more broadly, unfortunately. I think, Laura, that Via Rail is among the, the companies that will be uh, testifying before this committee. Uh, Miriam used the word opportunity. Uh, your view on, on the opportunity that exists for this committee over the coming weeks. Uh, yes, well, the former minister was also, I think, a little optimistic when she hoped for no mudslinging at, at, at this committee. I think um, you know, there's going to be a lot of pointing fingers. Especially at these CEOs, I think, you know, if I was stuck on a Via train for 18 hours overnight and I had my one-year-old with me, uh, you can bet I'd be looking for heads to roll. And, um, you know, a lot of people book the train because they they think it's a safer option than flying in the winter. And so I think everyone has pointed out, um, you know, that, that there's some serious problems with, with timely compensation, with lack of options. So, um, you know, I think that the committee is a good opportunity for um, for answers on on what went wrong, and there should be answers at both the company level and the government level because I think there should be more pressure placed on these companies uh, to actually uh, do something about this. I find the current system pretty opaque. I'm not exactly sure when when these airlines are supposed to pay people out, what the timeline is. Uh, it seems like passengers aren't getting the answers uh, that they're looking for. So I think this is one of those issues, Vashi, as you mentioned that really resonates with people. Everyone has to travel at one point or another, some more than others, but especially during the holidays, I mean, this this ruined a lot of people's uh, vacations, a lot of people's time to go uh, visit their families. So I think this is one where, you know, I don't often think that the public cares about committee meetings. I think this is one where people <laughs> will probably do and want to, they actually care about it. And I think they'll, they, they are, will look yeah. for answers and they'll want some accountability here. In my humble view, we should care about all of them, but you're right. In this one, it's <laughs> oh, going to happen. Uh, the first one happens on on Thursday, uh, and we'll see if they're able to 
come up with some solutions before the March break fund that I'm, I'm sure will ensue. I'm going to take a quick break here on Power Play. The front bench is sticking around. Up next, we'll hear some of my interview with former finance minister Bill Morneau. He's got a pretty explosive new memoir. We'll tell you about that in just a moment. Stay with us. So I think for this government to be more effective, and everyone can always do better, more effective in managing the economy, it's about engaging with the provinces to make sure that we create those opportunities across the country. It's about engaging with the private sector and thinking about how working together creates a better business environment. I tried to do that while I was there. It was a, a, an ongoing challenge, and I think that is uh, for sure a, a very important challenge for this government, especially today. I take your point in all of that, but I'm going to repeat the question because it, it wasn't a specific answer. Do you think the Prime Minister is an effective manager of the economy? Well, as I said, I think everyone can do better. In a CTV exclusive, former Finance Minister Bill Morneau there is calling out Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, saying the Prime Minister favored, quote, scoring political points over policy rationales. Will Bill Morneau's critique resonate with Canadians? Let's bring back our front bench panelists to figure that out. Miriam Monsef, Melanie Parody, Kathleen Monk, and Laura Stone. Laura, I'll start with you on this one. Um, do, do you think it makes a difference that Bill Morneau is saying this now? Uh, look, it's never good when one of your own comes out and levels some criticism at you, especially the finance minister. I mean, I think, you know, Bill Morneau's time in office, he wasn't viewed as the most politically astute um, he didn't have a background in politics, which which many viewed, you know, as a positive that he didn't come from that world. But he had some stumbles as well. But it, it's never great for the government when someone comes out and, and writes a book, frankly, about his time in office. I do find um, Mr. Morneau slightly mealy mouth there in terms of what exactly he's trying to say. He's not coming out, um, you know, stabbing the knife in the back of, of Prime Minister Trudeau. But obviously he has some some criticisms in his book about his time in office. I don't think he has the political gravitas of someone like a Jody Wilson-Raybould or a Jane Philpott, um, you know, two uh, well-respected women who, who left cabinet for different reasons that we all know about and have talked about a million times. I don't think it has that impact, but I do think, you know, his comments about uh, responsibility and the government caring more about how something looks as opposed to whether it's good policy, I think that will be part of a package of criticisms that will, you know, continue uh, to be leveled at the government, particularly by the Conservatives, I'm sure, in the lead up to whenever this next election will be. So I think it will add fuel to the fire of kind of the perception that's already out there and, and some of the weaknesses of the Trudeau government that, that their critics would say they're not viewed as very responsible fiscal managers. Do you think that's true, Melanie? And I, I'd like to, I just want to make sure I point out, we did ask the Prime Minister's office for a response, a, a comment on some of these comments from uh, Minister, Mr. Morneau, sorry, former Minister Morneau. We did not get a response from them. So I think that alongside Jody Wilson-Raybo, Jane Philpott, Andrew Leslie, we now have Bill Morneau, another very qualified person who came into politics with the, the Justin Trudeau government, who has since left and does not have great things to say. He did not have a good experience, evidently, um, and has serious a serious critique um, for the prime minister's style um, and also for uh, the decisions that, that he has made and the actions so far of, of this government. And either 
all of these people are wrong. Or uh, there, there is a very clear common thread here, and there's a big problem with the, with the Trudeau government that I think uh, they, they've all diagnosed accurately and the, in the same way. At the same time, uh, Miriam, look, the, 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 I read the book. A lot of it, you know, diagnoses a tension between a finance minister and the prime minister as kind of a natural thing. Yes, it boiled over. It led it to a not great place during COVID. But for the majority of, of his tenure, Bill Morneau says that that tension was supposed to be there. Do you think that's true? Okay, so I haven't read the book. And let me say on a personal <laughs> level, uh, Bill and I are as different as two people can get <laughs> in terms of upbringing, in terms of experiences, and we ended up working together. And I learned a lot from him. I very much look forward to reading the book, but I got to say, it is validating to see that he too is going through the post-politics reflections that <laughs> he struggled to. Uh, that's been validating for me. I came to politics as an activist. Uh, and so that's been interesting for me. And, you know, for, for the tensions that exist, I would imagine then going back as far as Confederation, you know, not every minister has won every single battle. And, you know, there is room and a responsibility to think long term. And certainly with things like the Canada Child Benefit, $10 a day childcare, that long-term thinking and planning was there. But then in the middle of a pandemic, uh, once in a hundred year pandemic, there is a requirement to think quickly and to give that confidence to Canadians. And, you know, there's no blueprint for this. So, you know, what I'm taking away, and I very much look forward to reading his book, is, you know, you win some fights in politics. And every day is a fight. Let me be very clear. You're fighting for your values. You're fighting for your constituents. You're fighting for the future of your country. You do not win every fight. But every day, you are making a difference. And I particularly look forward to reading about what was going through Bill's mind as he was making those big decisions around the workers' benefit and what his vision for the country is moving forward. And so, you know, and I really hope to see some significant coverage of what he was able to do, some of the game-changing stuff that we worked on for women and girls in this country. I will be looking forward to that. Right. Yeah, and he, I mean, if you listen uh, to the full interview, Kathleen, certainly he does uh, talk about some of the wins, and they're not going to surprise you. Yeah. The Canada Child Benefit, um, much of the early relief for COVID. It just so happens, as uh, Miriam says, like getting in his head during the the rest of the relief. That's when the breakdown really seems to occur, right? Like that's when the tension boils over, and his perception of what should be happening is very much not what the prime minister is announcing day in. Yeah, day. and that was a really tumultuous time. And really, when you look at, you know, the original vision for the CERB versus what was actually executed, it was a matter of 10 days, you know, like it wasn't a lot of time. Things were moving really, really quickly. But I think the most interesting thing that Morneau has done here is he's pulled back the curtain. He's pulled back the curtain on the operations in the prime minister's office. He's pulled back the curtain on, on what happens in crafting a cabinet. I mean, there are some really... Um, 
remarkable statements in his book where he says things like the people were promoted, um, not necessarily, they were promoted out of their depth into cabinet, but with, without the skill set. He said, he, more than that, he went on and said that grumpy cabinet ministers were essentially bought off, uh, you know, when it came to budget time. I mean, these are damaging uh, statements. And I think going back to something that Laura started off the, the section with was that everyone knows that Bill Murnau was a very um, skilled entrepreneur, CEO, businessman, but he had no political savvy, right? So he, and I think that this book may be an extension of that. I don't think he realizes how damaging this book can be to the party that he once run, ran for. I mean, there are just, you know, opposition ads left, right, and center when you go through this book and pull out those clips, attack ads that we use in election campaigns. I've written a he lot of them be in happy my lifetime. That because he also criticizes the leader of the conservatives exactly. right now in the book and, too. And so. there Equally, there's some some critique, really strong critiques against Pierre Polyev. So yeah. it's interesting, but a lot a lot of damaging goods in there. Okay, on that, I'm going to leave it on these great goods. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thanks to our debut front bench: Laura Stone, Melanie Paradis, Miriam Monsef, and Kathleen Monk. A little bit of news to leave you with this evening: We had Transport Minister Omar Al Gabra on the program just a few minutes ago, and he talked about the improvements he's promising to travel regulations for all those frustrated. Canadians who traveled over the holiday season. Have a listen to what he said. It was a once in a hundred year uh, pandemic and we learned some lessons from this. So what I am saying is, is that we're going to learn from those lessons and strengthen the rules, including figuring out how we can make complaint, the complaint process much more efficient and ensure that the Canadian Transportation Agency has the, the resources and the authorities they need to make them more efficient. So a promise there on this program from the transport minister to improve the rules that are in place. The big question, though, what exactly does that look like and when will it happen? We didn't get a clear answer on the first part of that question. But on the second part, the minister says there will be new improvements or rather improvements announced in the coming months. He said in this spring session, I asked, does that mean the next few months? And he said yes. So we'll keep our eyes peeled for that. We'll also keep our eyes peeled for the meeting of the Transport Committee. It starts this Thursday. It met today to kind of figure out what things would look like. On Thursday, members of that Transport Committee, so MPs from all different parties, will quiz the minister on what he's done so far for passengers and what he plans to do. We'll keep our eyes on that as it develops. They'll also hear from airline CEOs as well as Via Rail and a whole host of other industry stakeholders like the airport authorities. I'm sure you'll remember those bags stacked up at every airport across this country. That does it for us tonight at Power Play. I'll hand things over to my colleague, Morella Fernandez. Have a great evening.